0: Hello and welcome to Oddments. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. Prepare yourself as we explore some myths about the Old North Church and one unusual truth, Cuban fortresses and one-way streets, a game of kidnapping, and some more wisdom from our friend Willy Wonka. But first, let's take a step into the world of codes and secrets. The military-speak popular in old war movies isn't just random words. NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, created the list to allow clear communications under difficult conditions. Each letter, such as alpha for the letter A, is represented by a word that doesn't sound like any other words in the alphabet. The alphabet is as follows. Notice how few of these words rhyme with any other. Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta, Echo, Foxtrot, Golf, Hotel, India, Juliet, Kilo, Lima, Mike, November, Oscar, Papa, Quebec, Romeo, Sierra, Tango, Uniform, Victor, Whiskey, X-ray, Yankee, Zulu. You may have noticed that I pronounced the word Quebec, Quebec, unlike in some places of the United States where the word is pronounced Quebec. It's important that all the words be pronounced the same so that there's no confusion for the receiving party. The rock band Wilco released the album Yankee Hotel Foxtrot in 2002. What were they trying to spell? It turns out that YHF doesn't stand for anything. Singer Jeff Tweedy had heard a recording of a numbers station that repeated Yankee Hotel Foxtrot over and over and decided to use it on the album. Number stations are a curious phenomenon that you may have run across if you own a shortwave radio. They come in many forms, but they're typically a broadcast on a shortwave frequency that repeats letters, numbers, or even music endlessly and for no apparent reason. Here's a bit of the Yankee Hotel Foxtrot number station, which is believed to be of British origin. Yankee. Hotel, Foxtrot Yankee Po Foxtrot. Foxtrot Yankee Why would anyone want to broadcast Hotel, nonsense? Foxtrot. No one really knows for sure, except the people doing the broadcasting. The stations can be found in many languages, and it's presumed that many of these recordings are to broadcast messages to field agents involved in covert ops. Shortwave is a desirable frequency, as a signal can be received nearly worldwide. Owning a shortwave radio isn't terribly suspicious, so an agent can listen without fear of getting caught. It's presumed that the coded messages are decoded by one or more agents using sophisticated ciphers that are virtually impossible to break. While it's obvious that a repeating set of letters, numbers, or words can't contain much information, the constant broadcast could be necessary for a few reasons. One is that an agent would need to have something to tune into to test his equipment, even if he or she was only supposed to listen at a given time. Another reason is that it prevents anyone else from using the frequency, leaving it open for use when an important message needs to be sent. In the Internet age, such technologies may seem obsolete. But if you've ever struggled with a Wi-Fi hotspot or lost signal on your cell phone, you can appreciate how robust shortwave is. Sometimes, simple is best. We'll have links in the show notes where you can listen to more number stations. Yankee, Hotel Foxtrot, Group 10. Group 106. Imagine you've been blindfolded and fitted with earplugs. You are then loaded into an airplane where you fly for what seems like an entire day. You are then placed in a helicopter and an hour later you are set free and left by yourself. Where are you? How can you determine your location given that you've had enough time to travel anywhere in the world and consider the fact that the plane could have been flying in circles? If you've ever played this thought game with yourself, I have some good news. Through the magic of Google Street View, you can now play this game without the trouble of being kidnapped and rendered blind and deaf. GeoGuessr was developed by Swedish computer expert Anton Wallen, in the game, you're presented with a 3D view of some place on Earth. You can move in any direction at a walking pace, but the only way to figure out where you are is to use the visual clues presented on the screen. To make things more difficult, most license plates and signs are blurred by the Google algorithm, so it won't be as simple as finding a car. Sometimes you'll get lucky and find a real estate sign with a phone number, which will give you an area code, but points are awarded by how accurately you can guess your location by placing a pin on a map. Just because you know you're in Texas doesn't mean you'll get the best score. The game allows you to restrict your locations to specific continents, or you can choose to take the Grand Challenge and be dropped off anywhere in the world. Of course, since it's Google Street View, you can only be dropped off on places that have been photographed by Google's camera cars. You have no worries about getting lost at sea or in the Arctic tundra. Still, I bet you'll find the game more challenging than it sounds. A mountain road in Russia can look deceptively like Colorado or Bolivia. Other than awarding points, the game has no rules. You can decide for yourself whether you're allowed to Google area codes or highway numbers. If you're ready to give it a try, you can head over to geoguessr.com. That's G-E-O-G-U-E-S-S-R. The final E has been dropped. We'll also have a link in our show notes. Boston, Massachusetts, is filled with old churches. The most famous of these is the Old North Church, where Paul Revere instructed Robert Newman to hang lanterns to warn of the approaching British. That's right. Longfellow's poem, The Midnight Ride of Paul Revere, the work which made Paul Revere a household name, is inaccurate. Revere was actually captured very quickly on that fateful night, and his two companions, Prescott and Dawes, went on to warn the Minutemen. But that doesn't take anything away from the Old North Church. It is famous in its own right for being the tallest building in Boston for many years. At 190 feet tall, it was visible for miles around. It was the perfect place to hang signal lanterns, and it was also the perfect place to fly from. Yes, that's right. The Old North Church was used as a perch by one John Childs, who flew from the steeple in 1757. We know this is true because the newspapers of the day recorded the incident. In fact, there wasn't just a single incident. He repeated his flight several times. Flying from the steeple is actually simple. It's landing that's the hard part, and Childs was apparently able to repeatedly fly from the steeple and land, giving audiences a great deal of amusement. Concerned that his behavior might catch on, an ordinance was passed banning flight from the Old North Church. And that was the end of that. I'm assuming you're not satisfied with that ending, so I'll continue. For many years, people speculated as to what Childs was doing. Did he invent an early glider or parachute? No, it was something else entirely. John Child, it turns out, was a circus performer. He had taken out ads in the paper announcing his intention to fly from the steeple, and when the crowd assembled, he climbed to his lofty perch, donned a set of feathered wings of his own creation, and leapt falling 700 feet to the street below. Why 700 feet? Because that's how long the wire was that was attached to his apparatus. John Child was using a form of zip line, which is something you may have done at summer camp or even on a cruise ship. Without the proper words, the newspaper only recorded his deed as flying, but we now know how it was done. If you'd like to try this, be careful. It is still illegal to fly from the Old North Church. You'll have to check with the king's chapel to see if they'll accommodate you. The first one-way street in America was created in Asbury Park, New Jersey in 1935. Oddly, this was due to a ship named after a Cuban fortress. The SS Moro Castle was launched in 1930. She was built to take passengers from New York to Havana, Cuba in style. And she proved to be quite popular. Having been launched during Prohibition, Moro Castle was a place where liquor flowed freely once the vessel was at sea. She held 489 passengers and 240 crew and could make the 1,100-mile journey in two days and 10 hours, a respectable speed for the day. Despite operating during the Great Depression, the lure of alcohol and a tropical climate kept her full and busy. That was until September 7, 1934. While sailing up the East Coast on her way back to New York City, the weather grew foul. A nor'easter was brewing and many of the passengers took shelter in their bunks as the ship forced its way through the rising winds and churning seas. Even the captain, Robert Wilmot, Took his meal in his quarters complaining that his stomach was bothering him when a crew member went to check on him he found that the captain had died of an apparent heart attack this was just the beginning of a very long night chief officer william warms took over the command but the weather didn't help him with his new responsibilities winds increased and progress slowed still she was a sturdy vessel and there was no reason to be alarmed so long as they were careful, they'd reach New York City, a little late, but none the worse for wear. Near 3 a.m., smoke started to fill one of the passengers. A fire was detected in a storage locker in a writing room. Just as the crew was preparing to battle the small fire, an explosion shattered windows on the upper deck, allowing storm winds to fan the flames. In a case of insult added to injury, the explosion came from the ship's Lyle gun a safety device designed to shoot a line from one ship to another in case of an emergency just like this one. Within 30 minutes, the entire ship was ablaze. Acting Captain Worms attempted to beach the ship, which was only eight miles off the coast of New Jersey. But despite being so close to shallow waters, the intensity of the fire dictated that lifeboats be launched immediately, despite the fierce storm that surrounded the stricken vessel. After the Titanic disaster some 20 years earlier, ships were modified to always carry more lifeboat capacity than was needed, and that was true of Morrow Castle as well. The lifeboats could carry at least 800 people, more than enough for the 549 that were on board. Unfortunately, the fire burned through the main electrical conduit just before lifeboats were ordered. The fire separated passengers from their lifeboat stations, and when the first six boats were launched, Only 85 people were aboard. The passengers of the Moro Castle were now in a very similar situation to the passengers of the Titanic. Many passengers chose to jump into the roiling seas rather than burn to death, and while many died on impact, others struggled to stay afloat. Seeing this, the crew threw life preservers, deck chairs, and anything that would float overboard to try to rescue as many people as possible. Unfortunately, many people didn't know how to use life preservers, and still others were struck unconscious by the heavy wooden salvation raining down upon them. Morrow Castle was on fire and adrift in a major seaway, and it was hoped that one or more of a dozen ships in the area would offer assistance. But the radio man, George Rogers, had not received an order to send an SOS. Finally, feeling the heat from the approaching flames, he sent one SOS without orders, right before the generators stopped. Unfortunately, the single SOS was unconvincing, and ships were slow to respond. One ship, the SS Cleveland, approached the Moro Castle and even sent a motor launch, but seeing no one in the storm, she retrieved her boat and left the scene. Even the Coast Guard failed to take action until bodies started washing ashore hours after the disaster began. By morning, the once-proud liner was a smoldering hulk beached on the shore of Asbury Park. A total of 135 people perished in the waves or flames. On shore, people showed up to help with the injured or to collect bodies and debris. More people came to gawk at the disaster, and then more, until finally the streets of Asbury Park were jammed with cars, completely blocking support and rescue vehicles. The Asbury Park Police Chief ordered that traffic travel in only one direction on the major arteries. And his order for one-way streets, the first in the United States, stood until 2007 when development dictated a change. The Morro Castle was a complete loss, and the rules of ship safety changed drastically so that such an event could never happen again. But that's not the end of the story. George Rogers, the hero radio man, made the news again, but not as a hero. A few years after the Morrow Castle disaster, Rogers was working in a police station operating the radio. A fellow officer received an odd package in the mail, an aquarium heater. When he plugged it in, it exploded, permanently disabling him. He was convinced that George Rogers was responsible. Some of the crew of the Morro Castle had other suspicions and claimed that the poor captain may have been murdered by Rogers and that the fire may have been set by him to hide his crime. In 1953, severely in debt, George Rogers murdered a neighbor and his daughter in hopes of financial reward. He was convicted and sentenced to 20 years, of which he served only four. A brain hemorrhage finished what the Morrow Castle could not. The next time you're frustrated by a one way street, think of the Moro Castle and wonder what traffic would be like without her. Try some more. The strawberries taste like strawberries. The snozberries taste like snozberries. Snozberries? Who ever heard of a snozberry? We are the music makers. And we are the dreamers of dreams. You've just heard Gene Wilder as Willy Wonka explaining his philosophy to Veruca Salt, played by Julie Don Cole. The lines purloined by Wonka have been a favorite among rock bands, motivational speakers, and even the Church of Scientology. Given that this show is about curiosity, this seems a particularly fitting quote, and in truth, the entire poem from which it was taken is worth a listen. And if you listen carefully, you may hear another well-known quote. It was written by Arthur O'Shaughnessy as part of his 1874 book, Music and Moonlight. We are the music-makers, and we are the dreamers of dreams, Wandering by lone sea-breakers, and sitting by desolate streams, World-losers and world-forsakers, upon whom the pale moon gleams, Yet we are the movers and shakers of the world forever, it seems. O'Shaughnessy was not a writer when he first started his career. He began as a herpetologist in the British Museum's zoological department. If you'd like to hear the poem in its entirety and you enjoy opera, you might search for Edward Elger's Opus 69, The Music Makers that's it for this episode of Oddments. Thank you very much for listening. If you'd like to hear more, check out our website at collegeofcuriosity.com. There you'll find articles, other podcasts, and show notes that may tickle your curiosity. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, and until next time, thank you for listening.